Welcome to the second season of Better News, a series special podcast. It's all journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by API and the Night Lenfest News Initiative. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research API has published as part of its Better News Initiative. Corinne Chin is a video journalist at the Seattle Times. She and fellow video journalist Lauren Froney wrote a piece for Better News on how the Times is using Slack to lower barriers and allow conversations about cultural issues that can arise from their stories. Corinne, welcome to Better News. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. So before we get going, tell me a little bit about your your journalist journey. How did you end up at uh, the Times as a video editor or video journalist? So I started at the Times in late 2014, and my colleague Lauren, who we'll be talking about today, also started at the same time. And it was a really great opportunity at the time to kind of reimagine what we were doing with video at the Seattle Times. If you all remember, 2014 was was a kind of a really exciting time for multimedia. I think paywalls were going up more universally. Ad revenue for video was very good. So we had a lot going for us where we could really experiment with video. And that is what attracted me to the Seattle Times. I actually did my undergrad in magazine writing because I'm really interested in narrative and long form. And I went to grad school for video from 2012 to 2013 because it was that golden era when we were really figuring out multimedia. The New York Times had just published Snowfall, and it was just an exciting time to experiment with what we could do online with different platforms. So I've had a really great time at the Seattle Times experimenting with different ways to utilize video interactively, also as like a short documentary form. So what are the ways we can really push the envelope of our storytelling with video? I guess prior to the Seattle Times, I was freelancing. I was based in DC for a little bit and I did a lot of stories internationally. I did a fellowship in Brazil before the World Cup. I was based in Nairobi, Kenya and other places in Africa and so for me, it was, it was a really big change to come to a, a place where I was telling stories for the community in which I lived. And I think that my experiences abroad really helped inform that and really helped to shape my perspective, I think, around how important diversity and inclusion are in storytelling as well as representation and how that makes people feel and how it really changes the way people see themselves. So that that's pretty amazing. I'm trying to remember the last time I talked to anybody or anybody mentioned Snowfall. I remember that was <laughs> such a huge thing when that came out. Yeah, it was. Everybody was just like, oh, my God, we're all going to do Snowfalls. And then nobody did. We all did these other different things that were just as interesting but in different ways. Anywho, we're here to talk about Slack. But, of course, if you want to talk about video as it relates to Slack, you know, you said something there about becoming more aware of diversity and inclusion and in stories. You know, tell me what the Seattle Times is doing with its Slack channel to sort of uh, promote conversations around diversity and other issues. So this idea came up. We were having a diversity and inclusion task force meeting a couple years ago, and this was kind of the early days of the task force and, of course, prior to 2020. So it was just a few people sitting around at a table, and we, you know, we were just thinking, gosh, Sometimes we will publish something where the headline is a little bit off. There might be a word that has a coded meaning that people are not aware of, 
or we just frankly flat out publish something that's offensive or a microaggression. And so often when this happens, it's, it comes in the form of issuing a correction or an apology. And at this meeting, those of us there were kind of tired of why are we keep making these mistakes for, that require apologies? And what if there was sort of a hotline where our colleagues could call someone up who might have more insight into that topic or that community or that issue and just do a double check, do a sensitivity read before we put something out that we might have to apologize for later. So Lauren had this idea, Lauren Frown had this idea, why don't we do a hotline and do it in Slack? We had just started using Slack for a lot of our workflow things. So right then and there, we created this channel. We decided to publicize it to the rest of our newsroom colleagues and say, hey, there's this channel. It's a resource for you. If you are working on a story that is particularly sensitive, please post a draft in the Slack channel. One of us will get back to you, you know, do a sensitivity read, get back to you if we see any issues. And we can talk through some of the challenges and talk through some of the things and all learn together at the same time. I mean, it was no resources at all, really. It just required a core group of people to volunteer and say, yes, I will read this if something gets posted, just so we knew the Slack channel wouldn't be totally silent. But since then, it's really grown. You know, the really important thing is to make sure your colleagues know about it. So getting the word out, making sure people were a member of the Slack channel so that they could post their stories or their social media drafts or their news alert drafts in the channel, but also so that they could learn from what other people were posting and say, hey, I didn't know that about pronouns before, but now I know, or I didn't know that this word had these connotations before, but now I know. So that's kind of how it was born. And it's, you know, it's not something that you can just turn on and off like a light switch. It's something you really have to build up over time and remind people about and weave it into the culture of the newsroom and, you know, show positive case studies so that people are encouraged to to keep doing it, just like anything in a newsroom. So at the beginning, was there any resistance? Were there people who said that, you know, I don't want another pair of eyes on this story. You know, I understand this story. I don't think it needs some sort of sensitivity review. Yeah, and I think that happens no matter what, you know, the innovation is that you're trying to introduce to a legacy newsroom because we're all professionals and we're all really good at what we do and that's why we're here together in this workplace. But I think it's it's just the framing of it is really important, right? It's it's we're not accusing anyone of anything. This is just a tool for all of us to be able to learn. And I think a lot of writers have defensiveness and, you know, there are a lot of writers who don't like to show a rough draft and who want things to be pretty polished before they start sharing it. And so those are some of the challenges we've, we've dealt with. But for us, it's really, I think the breakthrough has been, this isn't a channel for shaming. We're not trying to name and shame people who aren't aware of certain things. This is for, for all of us to learn together and for us to read these things together so that we're, we're on the same page, so that we're constantly becoming better journalists and more up to date on the issues. Okay, so I'm somebody who's on the staff and I have concerns about maybe something that I'm writing or maybe, well, I, maybe I should somebody take a look at this and give it that type of review. You know, I submit it to that channel. Who's going to review it? So at the beginning, it was really important to have this set of volunteers, essentially, who 
who would read it if if they got notified if something ended up in the channel just because we wanted to make sure it got read and people weren't turned off by the fact that well the channel doesn't work anyway but over time we've developed it so that now anybody can weigh in and in fact because i think we've instilled this culture of learning together a lot of the time you know people will read it that i i've never even spoken to about that issue and, and it'll just start a conversation so at this point we're at the point where pretty much anyone can and does weigh in I'll say it didn't start that way. And I think, you know, for newsrooms who haven't had this before, it might be a very awkward way to start. And I think for that situation, you might want to choose a few people or have a few people volunteer. We're sort of wrapping up here 2020, which has been sort of a unique year for lots of different reasons. Certainly the protests for racial justice in America have sparked a lot of conversations. Certainly, you know, it's reinforced conversations that many newsrooms are already having about diversity and representation and the coverage that they're doing. What happened in 2020? I mean, you're kind of fortunate in that this was something that was in place. Did you see this as a, a very useful tool during this uh, this sort of turbulent year? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think, you know, the bigger challenge almost for us as a newsroom and how we were discussing race and equity and inclusion issues was moving those from in-person discussions to completely remote discussions. So it was really great that we already had this channel established and people knew about it. We mentioned it in our onboarding documents. So we make sure that everyone who joins the newsroom knows about it and knows how it's used. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's been very useful. I, I posted a lot of my stories in that channel, especially surrounding our protests. And, you know, in Seattle, we had the Capitol Hill occupied protests ongoing for about five weeks over the summer. And that was a really quickly volatile situation where the facts were changing and things were developing very quickly. So how, being able to just ping a Slack channel of other journalists who I didn't see every day anymore, but I knew were working on this developing story. That was really, really helpful. And I hope that we were able to do a better job than we otherwise would have in building trust with a group of people that, that has pretty good reason to distrust media. You know, I'll say, I don't think that Seattle media as a whole, you know, covered protesters as fairly as they could have. I think different publications had different perspectives that, that were on display and things were changing so quickly. So for us at the Seattle Times, we really, we really felt like we benefited from having our colleagues, you know, readily available through this one central communication tool to have these discussions with. Can I ask you sort of the, the editorial process for filing a story, not necessarily towards this, but, you know, if I'm covering something, do I usually just send it to the editor and there's a, already a, a separate re review, a regular editorial review in place? When a reporter files a story, typically goes through their editor and, and the desk and, you know, it's a very typical newspaper workflow, I would say. There's other eyes on every story, but with all newspaper staffs getting smaller and smaller, it's you know, our perspectives of along the way of that workflow are not as diverse as they once were when we had bigger staffs. So that's why I think, you know, opening it up to people who aren't necessarily an editor or don't always review stories has been beneficial. Yeah. And I like the idea of somebody with a specific mandate 
that we want you to look at this story from this angle or look for this type of content. Because I know that whenever somebody would give me a story to edit or something, I'm going to be looking at it, you know, for grammar, for spelling, for, you know, if things make logical sense, you know, name checking and things like that. There's so many other things that an editor does. But it's nice to have somebody who has, you know, is this going in and saying, okay, how is this representing the people that are involved in this story? Is this what we want to put out? Now, my understanding, as you said, that, you know, the idea was this, was to address the number of, you know, corrections that you had to do. Did you see any change in the amount of corrections that you had to do? You know, I don't know that we really measured that as a metric, <laughs> which we probably should. That would that'd be really interesting for newsrooms to measure. I think anecdotally, it definitely came at a time when we had done, you know, a couple corrections in a row and we were just, you know, down on it and disappointed that this had happened. So that I don't remember that kind of replaying. But I think one thing that I, I think has been something that we've tried to measure is you know, how much work are journalists of color putting into this idea of catching something before it goes out. And in the past, before the Slack channel, all of that work was invisible, right? It would be, oh, I am doing a story about this, this issue that is affecting a specific Black community in Seattle. Let me ask my Black colleague. And then that Black colleague does that work for free on their own time, not really getting paid for it, no credit, not visible, you know, their supervisor doesn't know that they're doing this work that's above and beyond. So that was another problem we wanted to solve with the Slack channel. We wanted to kind of democratize that invisible work. And so anybody can weigh in, no matter kind of what background you're from. And, and, you know, you're not stereotyping your colleagues by asking a specific person for feedback. But one thing we've been experimenting with is having a Google spreadsheet attached to this channel so that we actually track how much time is going in because we noticed that there were certain people who were doing a lot of sensitivity reads and other people you know we just want to make sure that 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 time is being tracked so we know and so their supervisor knows when it comes time for reviews or when it comes time to talk about you know promotions or new roles being created around the newsroom who's doing this kind of stuff and making sure that they get recognized for it. What I like about this idea of democratizing this, and obviously because you're democratizing it, that you're getting more people involved, you're getting different perspectives, and something you said several times, you're learning together. I think that's really kind of powerful because I'm a reporter, I'm, I'm writing something, I don't know, you know, I don't know how a certain group is going to perceive this. I don't have that background. This is how I grew up. My background is completely different. But it gives that person an opportunity, a safe place. I guess, or safe space where they can, hey, you know, I need to learn some more. And then they do learn. And one would hope that, you know, if they don't learn everything they need to do, they at least develop a sensitivity to understand that when they need to go ask for, for somebody else's opinion. For sure. And I think being a non-judgmental space is, is really a priority for us. You know, we haven't really had any issues with that, but I think if that were to come up, that would be something we would want to address really quickly, making sure that people feel feel safe posting, that they know that their story, we're all here to improve their story. And I think that is the biggest and most challenging cultural shift we've had to accomplish as a newsroom over the past few years. We founded the task force in 2017. And at that time, 
talking about race was really hard. It still is. It's always hard. It'll always be hard. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it was really, really hard. It was, you know, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of things being taken personally. And so it needs to come from the top too. You know, we have reworked our mission statement, the actual company mission statement, as well as our diversity mission statement for the company in the ensuing time. And I think that really matters because it really sends a message that this is a priority for the Seattle Times. This is something that's really important. And, you know, the people who organize this channel who are on the task force are not on it because we know more than you. We're on it because we recognize that we don't know everything. We recognize that we have blind spots, that everyone has blind spots and we're trying to learn more about ours. So yeah, learning together, like you said. (laughs) It sounds like a really great method of addressing this problem because, you know, as you said, writers, journalists can sometimes be very sensitive about criticism and it's very hard for some people to sort of deal with that. And so a situation like this could very easily turn into something very uncomfortable if there wasn't, you know, buy-in and this understanding of, hey, we're all kind of learning this together. I guess you mentioned that that you have this buy-in from the top. I guess you said that you've redone your your mission to address issues of of race and inequality and representation, et cetera. Is this all part of the same package? Do you see them sort of feeding off of each other? Yeah, I think it's all tied to the work that our diversity and inclusion task force has done. And like I said, we started in 2017 with about six people. And at this point in 2020, our Zoom meetings have pretty consistently more than 30 people in them, which is a big chunk of our newsroom. On top of the Slack channel, some of the other things that the task force has worked on, I think the first thing that we thought was really important was that mission statement, that diversity mission statement, because actually coming off of all the better news principles and all the table stakes principles, we wanted to have that vision be really clear for everyone that we need to increase diversity and inclusion and equity in our coverage and in the staffing of our newsroom. So that was the first thing we did. The Slack channel was one of the first things we did. And and another early project was the guidelines for inclusive journalism, which is not quite a style book, but it's more of a thinking guide for journalists as they report and write and craft their stories. And that's also a living document. It's always changing. We link to all of the style guides for the Asian American Journal Association, National Association of Black Journalists, National Association of Hispanic Journalists. All the style guides are linked in there and we're constantly kind of tweaking what the entries are. So pronouns is something that we've added. Latinx is something that we've added and we're constantly, you know, adding different terminology so that is also open to everyone. That's at st.news slash inclusive journalism. After those kind of initial foundational projects, the task force is, is just revisiting those projects, updating, keeping those up to date, looking at any other coverage issues that might come up in the interim. And we also do an annual staff survey where it's a sentiment survey and we kind of take the temperature of the newsroom, but we're specifically looking at retention and what are the push factors that are driving our staffers who identify as people of color and women out of the newsroom disproportionately you know why why do we have women and people of color leaving at a higher rate than 
white men, basically, is this what we're seeing. So, I, and I think every newsroom will see that, but we want to look at what specifically could we be changing and what can we take control of at the Seattle Times to retain staff, to attract staff, and to ultimately be a more inclusive newsroom. Yeah, that's really forward thinking, which is really, really admirable. And the fact that you guys have been doing it for a couple of years or a few years, and then you have this mechanism that you put in place in the Slack channel, I think that's, it's all very smart. You know, these changes don't occur overnight. You know, I think a lot of newsrooms are recognizing, I've said this many times on the It's All Journalism podcast, that, you know, for 10 years asking people and they've been saying that, yeah, diversity is a big problem in journalism, but it's really only in the last few years, certainly in the last year, that newsrooms realize, no, no, it really is a problem and it's something that needs to be addressed now. So seeing that there's an organization, a newsroom out there that's, that's made some positive steps and has, has these pieces that they've put in place to help them do that, while being sensitive to you know, the, the perspectives of, of all the staff members, I think is really kind of important. Is there anything about this process that has surprised you? Um, I think I was surprised at how powerful it could be to have the directive come from the top. You know, I think intuitively with diversity inclusion issues, I always had this this feeling that it's great coming from the grassroots, right? This is something that feels so genuine and like such a passion for people who are working on this. And, you know, I think we're, as journalists, we always question authority and we always want to hold leaders accountable. So when things about diversity come from the top, I intuitively tend to be a little more distrustful, but in the process of rolling out the Slack channel, it was like, oh my gosh, we really should have coordinated with top leaders on this to get the word out in a really consistent way instead of kind of in fits and starts, because to get that critical mass of having enough people in the channel engaging in conversation from the beginning, I think will really strengthen it. So making sure that that your top leaders, your top editors, are on board with this. And I mean, we didn't have any big resistors, but God forbid if, if somebody trying to do some sort of Slack channel like this had had opposition from someone in power, like that would be very, very difficult. And so I think for us, the skeptics were more, not so much editors with actual, you know, power necessarily, but more influential writers and and it was a a process of you know speaking with their editors and convincing them give it a try and (laughs) you know I think if you can roll this out and have it be very coordinated it will go much more smoothly than if you just kind of start a channel on a whim on a Thursday afternoon. The next question I was going to ask you is what advice you you would give to newsrooms who were thinking about doing something like this but what else would you add to what you've just said? I think making the most important probably thing from my perspective is making sure that the burden of, of the work doesn't only fall on journalists of color. I think that's something that, that a lot of these types of initiatives tend to do. And, you know, there's so many articles about it, like on CJR and Neiman about how journalists of color do diversity work as a second job. And that is, especially in 2020, when so much of the news has been really devastating to communities of color and and disproportionately impacted them. You know, just think about the burden you're putting on your colleagues of color and what they're already dealing with and, you know, what they might be going through. So 
I think one thing that people struggle with a little bit is, oh, well, if I'm a white person, do I have any authority to comment on this at all? And, you know, feeling a little bit self-conscious or not wanting to put themselves out there. And, you know, there are times and places where it might not be someone's place to comment on something. But I think in general, especially if you have instituted that culture of learning, you know, I know at least in our newsroom, we welcome comments from everyone. And getting over that and understanding that we want to share this labor, it doesn't matter what your personal background is, you know, just share what you know, just like any other topic, you know, share what you have already done the research on, who you've already talked to for that story or a different story and make sure that it's not all falling on any specific type of colleague. I've been talking to Corinne Chin of the Seattle Times about the sensitive news help channel that they've put together on Slack. Corinne, thank you for being on Better News. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News initiative and this podcast at betternews.org. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu.